0: support for MindShift comes from Landmark College, offering a fully online graduate-level certificate in learning differences and neurodiversity programs. Visit landmark.edu slash certificate to learn more.
1: Hi there, I'm Randa Adifatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country, and everything in between. Support this work today.
2: You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org
3: podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.
2: From KQED.
1: Welcome to MindShift, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Cara Newhouse.
3: And I'm Nima Gobier. MindShift listeners are probably well aware that schools are responsible for way more than just teaching students academics.
1: Beyond traditional subjects, they teach values, ethics, and important life skills.
3: We look to schools to shepherd in a new generation of compassionate individuals. It's no small task, and sometimes schools fumble.
1: There were just a couple of
4: different incidents where parents of kids who were about middle school age learned that the kids were going to have some sort of dance at school.
3: This is Erin Alberty, a journalist based in Utah. She told me about some reporting she did a few years ago. The kids were told that when they partnered up to dance that they weren't allowed to tell
4: People, no. They weren't allowed to say, no, I won't dance with you. In one case, a girl said that she tried to tell a boy no, and the principal of the school ran over and required her to do the dance and finish it, even though she didn't want to, and she said she was relieved when it was over.
3: Eventually, a parent raised concerns, so the district got rid of the practice altogether.
1: Why did the school have this rule to begin with?
3: They said they meant
1: to promote an atmosphere of
3: inclusion.
1: Ah, a classic case of good intentions and bad execution.
3: Exactly. They were trying to teach students to not hurt other kids' feelings, but they were also teaching them that their boundaries don't matter. Here's health educator Shafia Zaloom. Her work is about empowering kids to self-reflect and set healthy boundaries. Our culture has moved towards this kind of perfectionism
4: and, you know, a trophy for all and no one feels left out and, you know, moving in this direction and belief that somehow emotional well-being and health needs to always mean someone feels good all the time. And doing the right thing doesn't always feel good. In fact, it can feel really challenging and difficult, which would include, you know, a a ton of different
3: emotions. In other words, an inclusive school culture isn't necessarily about every kid feeling comfortable all the time. It's about creating an environment where everyone feels valued and recognizing that individuals may have different perspectives, experiences, and emotions.
4: It's actually really healthy and very human. To experience all of those feelings, they're an important part of your growth and being able to ultimately have really awesome, fun, supportive,
1: get you through the hard times kind of relationships. So Nima, how can we help students understand that experiencing emotions and expressing boundaries is normal and healthy?
3: Consent education may hold some answers.
4: So when kids say to me, what does consent mean? I'll say, well, it can be as simple as, you know, your body belongs to you.
3: So you get to choose how you touch um, and how you get touched. When done right, consent education is age-appropriate and tailored to the developmental stage of the students. For example, when Shafia is teaching young kids, she focuses on simple concepts like personal space. Taking into consideration their space
4: bubble, right, something like that. And if they're comfortable with how you're
3: interacting with them. With older kids, consent can be applied to a lot of different contexts, from checking with your friend before taking one of their french fries, to asking someone to dance, to, well, having sex. She starts conversations about consent by first talking about respect.
4: You know, I'll go into a classroom of 118-year-olds, and I'll say, how many of you have been told to, you know, or taught to respect Um, yourself and others, like your whole life. And every hand, every single hand will go up in that room. I see a hundred hands shoot right up. Hands come down and I'll say, how many of you can tell me with confidence what the definition of respect actually is? No hands go up.
3: Eventually, students will get to a point where they're like, respect is treating people the way that you want to be treated, also known as the golden rule.
4: There's certainly value in that, but if I'm a touchy-feely person and I go into the world assume that everyone else is touchy-feely too, that's not going to have a vibe of consent. Respect is actually treating people how they want to be treated. And how would you actually know how someone wants to be treated? You have to take time, you have to be patient, you have to pay attention and ask questions. You have to inquire, you have to become curious in a genuine way so you'll actually get an authentic answer.
3: Even as consent education holds a lot of promise, there are concerns from parents and community members about whether consent concepts are too mature and if these classes promote sexual activity.
4: I think it's really misunderstood sometimes. They think I'm suddenly gonna launch into some sort of like erotica, you know, over sexualized conversation that would be so irresponsible and age inappropriate
1: about about the mechanics of sex and That's not what it is. There's even been pushback on having consent education in schools at all. Actually,
3: in Utah, where the school dance situation happened, they've had trouble passing bills for consent education. Utah, in the health, sex education curriculum, is abstinence-based. This is Carol Spackman Moss. She's a representative in Utah who drafted a bill in 2021— That would make it mandatory for schools to teach consent education.
4: I mean, knowledge is power, and that's what we're trying to give them, both young men and women, the power to give consent or not
3: as they mature and they have sexual experiences. Before she was in office, Carol was a teacher for over 30 years. I've run a lot of bills all the years I've been in, but I've never had so many people write to me.
4: Teachers who teach this, Parents, students saying, this is so important
3: to me and my friends. What can we do to help? Ultimately, the bill didn't pass. Opposing groups put out narratives about Carol, essentially saying she was trying to teach kids to consent to sex. And that made the bill really unpopular. So she went back to the drawing board and drafted a bill that was similar, but focused on preventing sexual assault. So now when people say, was that your consent bill? I go, No, it's not. This is a different bill. It's about personal
4: boundaries, both emotional
3: and physical. It went up for a vote earlier this year, but it didn't pass either. Some of the statehouse interns who witnessed the vote were Carol's former students. They were crushed. So far, only 13 states require consent education in their health and sex education classes. Utah is currently not one of them. Here's Shafia again. A lot of these
4: issues, too, have become highly politicized. Schools are very political places. And then there's also this inevitable you know, tension that always exists around individual rights and community responsibility. And it's challenging.
3: When the political conversation is focused on the sex part of consent, we forget that consent can be applied to many non-sexual situations.
4: We wanna be realistic about one, how kids are neurologically programmed and that's to seek the acceptance of their peers. And two, the complexities of the social landscape that they're navigating. And we have to remember that whenever kids are saying no, whether it's to behavior or a substance like vaping or something, or to doing something that isn't in someone's best interest, cheating, whatever it is, they're not saying no to the vape. They're not saying no to the homework being shared. They're saying no to the person who is offering or asking for it. And the power, the social power, and the meaning that that person has in their relationships and the social landscape that kid is navigating. And we've, I think, a lot of times can lose sight of that as adults and how important and deeply like invested kids are in that.
3: So many school programs are geared towards cultivating empathy, honesty, and compassion in students. All of those qualities are the building blocks of consent.
4: You know, a lot of schools don't actually realize how much they're doing already and how they can then build upon what they're already doing and believe in and feel good about to expand into these other realms and contexts in a way that's age-appropriate and helpful and ultimately is going to serve their community um, and the the young
3: people in it. Just to recap, we've learned that creating an inclusive school culture goes beyond ensuring that every child feels comfortable all the time. Age-appropriate consent education is crucial, yet it's faced resistance in some educational settings.
1: Now I'm curious about what it looks like when schools build on their values to provide consent education that applies to a lot of different situations.
3: Well, you're in luck, Kara, because we'll dig into that after the break.
4: to sign up now. That's podcast
0: with an S. Thanks.
3: If you think about your first romantic relationship, you might remember emotions that span from butterflies to
1: heartbreak. I know I do. Whether it's love, infatuation, or even just friendship, relationships can be hard. And for something so important, there aren't a lot of places to go for guidance.
3: Making Caring Common is a research project based out of Harvard Graduate School of Education. It looks at ways to teach kids to care for others. That includes talking to kids about love and
1: relationships. Surveys show that lots of young people feel anxious about romantic relationships, and they want to feel more prepared.
0: We've abdicated responsibility to the media to teach our kids what love is.
3: Here's Richard Weisbord, the Making Caring Common director.
0: Images of love in the media are more dangerous than images of violence in the media, I think.
3: He says there are two important things in life.
0: One is work and the other is love. I, I would say that love is even more important than work. But they're both very important. And we have, you know, huge institutions and organizations that are preparing young people for, for work. We do almost nothing to prepare young people for the subtle, tender, generous, focused, disciplined tough, wonderful work of learning how to love somebody else um, and learning how to be loved.
3: Sex education is usually the closest schools get to teaching about relationships. But often, sex education is just trying to keep the worst possible outcomes at bay.
0: Disaster prevention, you know, how to not get pregnant, not get STDs. It's not about how to have ethical intimate relationship or sexual relationship with somebody else.
1: Nima, you mentioned that many sex ed programs don't include consent education.
3: And the ones that do can be very surface level. It's like, hey, kids, here's what you need to know in order to not commit assault. Shafia, the health educator we talked to earlier, wants more for her students.
4: I always talk to kids about how we want to aspire to more than just not a felony. It's the foundation. It's not the ceiling. Like, there's so much more to go to think about, to take into consideration, to be attuned to, if we're really talking about promoting healthy sexuality and relationships and relationships that are grounded in mutual respect, empathy, care, and
3: dignity. At Urban High School, a private school in San Francisco, California, all students are required to take Shafia's class. She combines sex education and consent education into a course that follows the entire lifeline of a romantic relationship. So the first
4: week is like sexuality and self. The second week is initiating a relationship, like our first class is how do you ask someone out on a date? And then we move on to effective communication and relationship building, safe sexuality practices, ethical quandaries, um, adversity and challenges. And then we fall in love, but then we break up and then how to survive a breakup and, and the difficult feelings of that and how to resource support um, within your communities when that happens. So we actually experience in how you take the class and how the class goes, the arc of it, what we're trying to teach.
3: So when students learn about consent, they understand what consent means for them at the prom after party and when they're trying to go on their first date. When I went to Shafia's class, she was working with her students to figure out the best way to start a romantic relationship with someone. A really important point that Shafia pushes during this activity is that the answer a student gets when they ask someone out is secondary to making sure it's a respectful interaction.
4: So remember we talked about that huge developmental task that's in front of you, which is to figure out how to have a healthy, intimate relationship, sustained relationship in your life, right? So here's the thing. We are going to initiate a relationship and it's not getting someone to say yes because that would be non-consensual, but rather both people get to walk away with their dignity no matter what happens, okay? And that simply means that both people feel like they were treated like they have value.
3: Shafia had the students answer questions in small groups. One question was, what do you do if someone asks you out on a date and you want to say no? One student said they might respond with, no i don't see you that way sorry
4: so i heard sorry which is interesting how many of you came up with something that had an apology uh, attached to it okay so your group did too okay here's the thing i actually encourage you not to apologize for your feelings do you know what i'm saying like I, i think it's important i think we're socialized to do that and i think we feel badly because we're turning somebody down and I get that. That's what the majority of people default to, for sure. Um, and I appreciate the caring that I feel like is the intention behind that. And I feel, and, and I also, because we're talking about the context of sexuality, I think within sexuality in particular, people shouldn't have to apologize for their fe- like how they feel or if they're not feeling that connection in that moment.
1: The kids um, struggled so, with this. The the Honestly, adults struggle, struggle with this too.
3: But in thinking about how they might say no to someone, the students seemed to understand how to accept rejection, too. They had more empathy. When students were asked how they would like to be told no, they said they wanted honesty and directness.
2: I, I think and, like rejection will never be nice. I feel like, right. I feel like it's kind of.
4: Selfish. So how do we make it clear while acknowledging that someone has made themselves Sort of vulnerable, yeah, or maybe we don't need to. Like, good, good. Thank you, but I don't like you that way. Yeah. It's like short and sweet, yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting, I saw something on the gram. Um,
3: Parents have a role to play here as well. When a kid comes home a little heartbroken because their love is unrequited, the impulse is to say something comforting.
4: Um, they'll say something like, oh, they don't know what they're missing out on, they have no idea, you know, that kind of a thing. I actually think that is... Um, misguided and doesn't doesn't move us closer towards or serve us when it comes to authentic connection and healthy sexuality. The implicit messaging, whether it's intended or not, is like you can't trust their no, right? Because remember I talked about how healthy sexuality should mean the same thing to both people? And if someone doesn't reciprocate your feelings, that it simply means it's not a match, right? That they don't think of your relationship in the same way. So we don't need to minimize someone's thinking, their feelings, their intuition, or how they respond to our asking or our expression of attraction by, by somehow discounting their capacity to truthfully express what they want in a boundary. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So, so we're-
3: Shafia has seen the impact of this kind of education on students who have graduated high school. I have so many alums who are in college now, and they come back and they're like, Shafia,
4: do you know nobody knows anything?
3: Alyssa Romo is a former student of Shafia's. She's 23 and recently graduated from Columbia University.
2: I had gone to an all girls school for K through eight for all my life and high school was very different and a very different vibe. So I remember being very like overwhelmed and felt a little bit out of place, particularly when it came to like boys and like navigating that kind of thing.
3: One of the activities she remembers from Shafia's class is that they had to watch romantic comedy movies. And then they would come back and discuss whether the characters' interactions were consensual or not.
2: Like, what were, like, the good things? What were, like, the healthy things that they did with each other? Like, setting, like, you know, expectations for the relationship or, like, boundaries or, like, telling each other what they wanted.
3: It helps students understand that just because they're seeing it on the big screen, it doesn't mean that's how a healthy relationship looks. Another thing they did was role-play scenarios. Alyssa recalls one scenario in particular because... It was so awkward.
2: The scenario was the other person saying that they loved me and me saying that I wasn't ready to say that. Something that I still like struggle with. And like, I remember thinking like, oh, like it's okay to like not say it if you don't want to, like, oh. She noticed the way that she thinks about
3: relationships is a bit different than the way her friends think about relationships.
2: I was talking to one of them the other day and I was saying like, oh, this guy is like, he's really nice to me, something like that. And she looked at me and she was like, I've never really thought about how a guy, like, treats me. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I don't think about what I want out of a relationship.
3: It boggles her mind that people aren't trying to have relationships that seem mutually beneficial, where both people are trying to have a good experience.
2: I actually was in a relationship uh, through high school and college, and I think that now being single for, like, the first time, ever kind of around now and like setting expectations for myself and being very insistent on how people treat me and like how I want to be treated I think comes from Shafia or like at least is like related to that to what we learned in her class we had a lot of conversations about setting boundaries and like really like being conscious of what you want out of a relationship and a partner and like the people in your life and I remember like making a list or like something and I was like, wow, this is like deep, this is important stuff, (laughs) like, definitely stuck with me.
1: You know, it's really incredible to see how consent education can have such a huge impact on students. It seems like Alyssa is still experiencing the benefits years down the line. Exactly.
3: When students understand the importance of consent, they're better equipped to navigate relationships, establish boundaries, and build meaningful connections. By teaching students about consent, schools can create a lasting culture of empathy and inclusion that benefits us all. This episode would not have been possible without Aaron Alberty, Alyssa Romo, Richard Weisbord, Representative Carol Spackman-Moss, Shafia Zaloum, and her students. The MindShift team includes Ki Sung, Cara Newhouse, Marlena jackson Rotondo, and me, Nima Gobier. Our editor is Chris Hambrick, Seth Samuel is our sound designer, Jen Chien is our head of podcasts, and Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. MindShift is supported in part by the generosity of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and members of KQED. Thank you for listening.